Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our fourth session together uh, in our study that I've entitled To the Ends of the Earth where we're discussing proclaiming the gospel in the first century and today we turn to a very uh, familiar uh, part of Scripture, and that is uh, primarily Acts chapter 9, where we talk about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Remember, we've already considered uh, Acts 10 and 11 with the gospel going out to the Gentiles uh, via the Apostle Peter, but uh, so now we're sort of backtracking to see what else was going on during that period of time, and that was the conversion of, uh, of one called Saul of Tarsus, who became known as Paul the Apostle. Remember, in the early church, there was a great deal of persecution that was going on, especially uh, by the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection and didn't appreciate hearing any sort of preaching about the resurrection. But also by Saul of uh, Tarsus. Remember, he was the one who held the coats while Stephen, was uh, the church's first martyr, was stoned to death. And in Acts chapter 8, it says, And Saul approved of his, and the his there is Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And remember, part of the Great Commission was that they were to go into all the world, uh, beginning at Jerusalem and then into Judea, which was, of course, the province where Jerusalem was located, and then to Samaria and then to the uttermost part of the world. Well, there had apparently been some reluctance on their part, just as there is very often for us. We all tend to uh, be happy with the status quo very often, particularly if things are going well. But uh, so what God did was He turned up the heat in terms of persecution. And that should not be a surprise to us at all because if you will recall, and this is not in your notes, but if you'll recall from back in uh, uh, John chapter 15, verse 18 and following, <clears throat> Jesus uh, there uh, to His disciples just before the cross said, If the world hates you, know that it's hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. If they kept My word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And then also in chapter 16, the first, uh, I think, two or three verses, it says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember 
that I told them to you. So this should not have been a surprise to the apostles. It shouldn't be a surprise to us when we are persecuted for our faith, whether it means being rejected, being turned down for something, being excluded socially, uh, someone trying to diminish uh, our reputation because of our uh, stand uh, in terms of the Bible. So it shouldn't surprise any of us. But that's what's going on in the in the early church. Verse 3 of Acts chapter 8 says, But Saul, this is Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them uh, to prison. Uh, in one of... Uh, in, in a, several of the uh, New Testament letters that Paul wrote, there's some autobiographical material there, and one of those is in uh, one such instance is in Galatians chapter one, verses thirteen and fourteen. And listen to what Paul said here. Now he he wrote this uh, later, but he was reflecting on these days in which, for example, when he was holding the coats when Stephen was uh, stoned to death, um, and also as he got letters to uh, to go and, and persecute the church. It says in Galatians chapter 1, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So that that tells you something, uh, again, uh, from an autobiographical sense, that tells you something of, of Paul's... Uh, well, he came to be known as Paul, well, Saul, uh, Saul's actions. And then also from his letter to the Philippians, which was written later than the uh, Galatian letter. In fact, the Philippians was probably written, oh, just uh, maybe two or three years uh, prior to uh, uh, Saul's uh, execution in Rome. But in Philippians, he writes in Philippians 3, verses 4 and following, and this tells us something about his attitude. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. Uh, remember also in Acts 23, it tells us that not only was he a Pharisee, he was the son of a Pharisee. So you know there must have been a lot of pressure at home for him to follow in dad's footsteps. Although, as far as I know, we don't really know anything about his dad. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So you'll notice where his confidence was. His confidence uh, was, in his, uh, was in his abilities. His confidence was in the fact that, uh, that he was a Pharisee and uh, he was doing all the right things. In fact, in that passage we just read, it says, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. That means uh, he was trying to follow the very letter of the law. Uh, he was, of course, blind to those passages where it, uh, where, for example, Isaiah 53, where uh, Isaiah described the suffering servant Messiah, and um, <clears throat> Saul just didn't uh, just didn't see that at the time. Now he will come to see that, but in his. Uh, pre-conversion days he did not see that but when he says legalistic righteousness he was faultless 
doesn't mean he he thought he was sinless, but it did mean that when uh, in those moments when he did something that wasn't right, he knew exactly what offering to uh, offer up so that he could be uh, cleansed cleansed from his sin. And of course, we we learn in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere that that cleansing was turned out to be just merely a ceremonial cleansing. Uh, that the blood of bulls and animals, other kind of animals, uh, could not uh, take away sin. It only made a person ceremonially clean. It took the blood, the ultimate sacrifice. All of those sacrifices were symbolic. And they pointed to the ultimate sacrifice that would take place there at the place of the skull on Golgotha as Jesus would hang on the cross, rejected by heaven, rejected by earth, uh, as He bore the sins of His people. Now that brings us to Acts chapter nine, and uh, it just it just follows on what uh, Saul of Tarsus was doing as he was ravaging the church. Let's keep reading. The, the time is around A.D. thirty three, thirty four, somewhere in that range. It's uh, it's about uh, three years or so, maybe four, after the Lord Jesus uh, has been uh, crucified and resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. It's the essentially the early days of the church. But uh, Acts nine. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, now the way was the uh, uh, was the terminology that was used for believers in Christ uh, early on. It wasn't until several years later when the uh, when the gospel made its way up to Antioch, Syria, and Syria and Antioch became the great sending church in the first century. Uh, in fact, that was the church from which uh, the Apostle Paul launched his three, uh, three missionary journeys. And... Uh, it wasn't until uh, until that time that uh, believers came to be known as Christians. They were first called Christians at Antioch. Up until that point, they were referred to as followers of the way. And of course, that term, the way, came from a statement that Jesus had made when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Now let me mention this before I forget it. And that is, there is a cult today called the Way International. And a lot of the things that they say uh, sound real good and they get a lot of stuff from the Bible, but it is a cult. It is not, they are not following the same Jesus that, uh, that the Bible talks about. So, uh, and perhaps sometime we can, uh, we can talk about some of these cults, but this is not the time. Alright, so he's getting letters from the high priest so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. So all, there's, there's this visual uh, thing that happens. All of a sudden there's this bright light, I guess somewhat like uh, like lightning for example. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice. Now it's not only visual, it's also auditory. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Now, we know, and as we'll read in a moment, that this is the Lord Jesus who is speaking to Saul of Tarsus. But the Lord says, why are you persecuting me? Why didn't the Lord say, why are you, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting the members of the way? He said, you said, why are you persecuting me? Because see, uh, part of what it means to be a true believer in Christ is that we are in union with Christ. We are one with Him. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. Now notice, you've got this proud Pharisee who's got, who's got his act all together, he thinks. And now he, is, uh, he has been blinded. Uh, he is going to have to be led into the city of Damascus. And, um, and the Lord says... Uh, you'll be told what you're supposed to do. In other words, uh, Saul, you've been in control, you think, for a long, long time. Well, I'm going to tell you something. You're no longer the one in control. I'm the one in control. In fact, I'm the one that's been in control all along. And now you're going to come to grips with that. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Um, I think this is probably similar to what we read in John chapter 12 where Jesus heard the voice of the Father coming out of heaven. The people just thought it thundered. In fact, in some of His uh, uh, testimony in the book of Acts where He testifies in front of uh, several different uh, uh, governors of Rome and even King Agrippa, um, that he talks about, uh, you know, they heard this, the people who were with him heard a sound, but it was sort of an inarticulate sound. And I think that's, uh, that's probably what's being discussed here. They saw no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Notice he is completely helpless. He is totally dependent on other people to look after him. And those of us who like to be in control, this is the worst situation in which we can find ourselves is when we are totally dependent on someone else. But of course, what Christ is teaching him is that he needs to be totally dependent on Him, that is, on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And uh, God speaks to... Uh, this, is, this part's not in your text. There's just not room to put all the text in your notes. But uh, God spoke to Ananias and told him, said, uh, said I want you to go to this uh, city, uh, this street called Straight. There's a guy in there named Saul of Tarsus. He's going to be expecting you. And I want you to uh, lay your hands on him and pray for him that he will receive his sight and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and it's really a, it's a, it's a humorous part of Scripture because uh, Ananias begins to uh, talk with the Lord and say, well, wait a minute. Lord, uh, haven't you heard about this guy? He's been doing all sorts of terrible things to believers. And, uh, and 
And the Lord assures him, look, he is a servant of mine. You just do what I tell you to do. So Ananias kind of walks in on on the pages of Scripture and within a few verses walks off and we never hear about him again. But I think the real message here and uh, the application and the thing that should encourage us is that when God is working uh, and you put yourself in in Saul's shoes or sandals and there he is in Damascus, he's he can't see, he's completely dependent on other people, he's hungry, uh, he doesn't know what to expect and while God is working on him clearly in that situation, God is also working at the other end on Ananias who is going to bring this message to the uh, to Saul of Tarsus. So let's uh, let's see how that uh, how that works. So there's this disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, obviously not the one uh, who betrayed the Lord, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And this is where the conversation, uh, Ananias' conversation with, uh, with the Lord takes place. And in verse 15 he says, Go, for he, that is Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, and I can imagine this, if I'd been Ananias, it'd been like laying your hands on a, on a bomb. Brother Saul. But, uh, you know, Ananias may have may have been absolutely confident by this time having spoken with the obviously spoken uh, with the Lord brother Saul the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the holy spirit and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened now notice in this case and we've talked about this for a, a couple of sessions or, or at least mentioned it in this case when uh, Saul of Tarsus was filled with the Holy Spirit there's no evidence here that there was any sort of glossolalia or unusual kind of uh, languages that he spoke that was proof of that what is the proof of that is what follows later and that is that he goes out and with power begins to refute uh, Jews preaching that Jesus is is none other than the Messiah. Because that's really the purpose of the filling of the Spirit, is so that we will be witnesses. You you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, that's what you're going to do. And that's that's our that's the that's the focus of what we're talking about in this uh, in these various sessions of this uh, this particular study. It says for some days, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, "He is the Son of God." So, well, wait a minute now, Saul. So, 
shouldn't Saul have gone to seminary? Well, Saul essentially had gone to seminary. He'd been trained as a Pharisee. So he knew all of those Old Testament Scriptures, forward, backward. He, he knew all about Moses and Aaron and David and Solomon and Isaiah and Jeremiah. He knew about all of these things. But up until this point, as he would write later, there would have been a veil, as it were, over his eyes so that he didn't recognize that what was being discussed in this uh, this person who was, who, whom God the Father had promised was coming was none other than this Jesus of Nazareth. And now the scales were taken away. The veil was gone. And now those passages of Scripture that he knew so well say, Good grief, Isaiah 53 has been talking about Jesus. Psalm 22 is talking about Jesus. My goodness gracious. So it says, Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Proving that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And how did he do that? He did it by the Scriptures. He knew the Scriptures. And when he would go to the synagogues, he would talk to them about the Scriptures and he'd say, Hey, Guess who this is talking about? This is not somebody else who's coming along sometime. This is none other. This is talking about none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Now, about this time, Paul Paul continues. Uh, uh, well, well, I tell you what. I'm about to get ahead of myself. Let's look at verse 23. It says, "When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him." But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now you talk about God working on your pride, working on your ego. Think about how was it that uh, that Saul had intended to go into Damascus to arrest uh, Christians and take them back to Jerusalem for trial and possibly for execution. Of course, he went. He went in with pride. He went in uh, with with an exaggerated ego. Uh, you know, I'm here and I'm doing God's work and I'm going to get this whole thing straightened out. But instead of going in that way, he was had to be led into, into Damascus because he was blinded. And now he's done a little bit of preaching in Damascus and... The threats now, he's not the one making the threats. The threats are being made against him. And as a result of that, they have to sneak him out by night, lowering, putting him in a basket and lowering down the wall to get him outside the city so he can get away. My goodness, what is God doing? God was working on this guy's pride. That's, uh, that's sort of an ignominious way uh, not only to enter the city of Damascus, but also certainly to leave the city of Damascus. 
Now, between uh, scholars seem to believe that between verses 25 and 26, this lowering him in a basket, and then the next verse uh, that Luke writes in Acts 9 says, and when he had come to Jerusalem... Most scholars believe that between those two verses, there's a three-year period. Uh, and Paul writes about that in Galatians chapter 1. Notice again what in his own one of his autobiographies he says this, talking about right after being lowered from the... Uh, uh, over the city wall there in Damascus in, in the basket. He said, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. I'm, I'm reading from Galatians 1. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And we know that uh, from other places, uh, uh, that other things that Paul said, he spent close to three years in Arabia, and we believe that uh, uh, this is the this is the time in which God was teaching him uh, things like justification by faith alone, and uh, he was really getting the uh, understanding the gospel completely, uh, and particularly uh, his role that he would play in taking the gospel to the Gentiles. So that three-year period occurs between verses 25 and 26. Then in 26 it says, and and so Paul now picks up the story, I'm sorry, Luke picks up the story, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they didn't believe that he was a disciple. So he, you know, he leaves Damascus, he goes into Arabia, he apparently goes back to Damascus, and then when he decides, well, I probably ought to go down there and talk with the guys at uh, at Jerusalem there at the home office, and when he tries to go down there and get an audience with them, he said, "Oh, we've heard about you. We don't want anything to do with you." But notice verse twenty-seven. Here's the son of encouragement. But Barnabas took him. <clears throat> that's what his name means, son of encouragement. Are are we encouragers? Do we encourage? I don't mean just pump folks up for the sake of pumping them up. Say, oh, you are such a wonderful person. But I mean, are we encouraging people? Uh, we we need to be doing that. Golly, the world needs that. World needs that. And if anybody ought to be able to do that, it ought to be us who are believers in Christ. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, took him, Saul, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So here's, here's this son of encouragement. He's, a, he's, a, he's a, a Levite, a believing Levite from the island of Cyprus. And in fact, uh, I'm sure some of you are already ahead of me in your reading, and that is Barnabas is going to be uh, his partner, will be his partner in the first missionary journey, uh, and we'll see that in our, I think it's our next session. So Barnabas comes along, sort of puts his arm around him, takes him to the apostles because the apostles trust Barnabas. And so Barnabas puts in a good word for Saul of Tarsus, and uh 
And then it says, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. The Hellenists were the Greek speakers, the Greek speaking Jews. They, well, they had adopted a lot of the culture of the Greeks, um, largely because of the, uh, the effects, uh, the work of um, Antiochus the, uh, the Fourth. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, notice, uh, notice what it says here. It says, uh, And he, sp- he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So, they take him to uh, Caesarea, which is a seacoast city there on the Mediterranean. Send him back to Tarsus, which is which is up north. That's uh, that's in the province of Cilicia. And for the next oh, at least nine years, possibly as much as about eleven years. Paul stays up there and ministers essentially among his own people in his hometown of Tarsus. You would think, well, here's this guy. Boy, he's he's speaking boldly. Let's just turn him loose. But that was not the plan of God. And in fact, Paul even writes about that again in Galatians chapter 1 where he writes this. He says, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Cilicia is where Tarsus was. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. So, the when the... Uh, persecution and the threats break out against Saul of Tarsus there in Jerusalem they send him back to his uh, essentially to his hometown verse 31 of Acts 9 says so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied now, what happens after all of that? <clears throat> if you look in Acts chapter eleven, you see the church at Antioch. Uh, we see that there's going to be a change and an emphasis on the church at Antioch. Up until this point in the book of Acts, the real emphasis is on the home base of Jerusalem. Because remember, uh, the first believers were just a, almost exclusively Jewish. They were either born Jews or they were Jewish proselytes. Uh, Pentecost had taken place in Jerusalem. A lot of people had been saved there in uh, in Jerusalem. And while there were uh, little pockets of believers here and there, like Cornelius, uh, the Roman soldier that we talked about in our last session, it's still predominantly a Jewish church, and the uh, and the the emphasis has been essentially on what's going on in Jerusalem. But now the whole emphasis changes at this point. Uh, And it changes to the north to Antioch, which is in Syria. Antioch was the third largest city in the uh, the Roman Empire. It was was notorious as far as moral corruption was concerned. Uh, It was filled with uh, temples, with idols. Uh, Apollo and uh, and Artemis were were certainly... uh, uh, 
some of the chief deities. It, it was the capital of Syria. It's about 300 miles north of, uh, of Jerusalem. And at that time, it had a population of uh, over a half a million people. Uh, some, some people believe it possibly as much as three quarters of a million people. But uh, as, this, uh, as things developed... What happened is the whole emphasis now becomes on the church there at Antioch. It becomes the great sending, uh, this great sending church. It's uh, it's primarily a Gentile church. There certainly are some Jewish believers there, but it's primarily a uh, it was primarily a Gentile church. The language and the culture uh, very different from what it was down in Jerusalem because the culture there would be uh, would be Greek. So. We pick up the story of uh, of Saul of Tarsus, and up to this point, he's still referred to as Saul of Tarsus. Uh, in Acts chapter 11, the time now is around A.D. 42-43. Uh, Peter's visit to Cornelius uh, at Caesarea has already taken place by now. And so the scene shifts from Cilicia where uh, Saul is staying and he's just perhaps he's still tent making and he's doing a little preaching on the side but it's uh, again God sort of put him back up there for about 9 to 11 years some some period like that now the scene changes to Acts chapter 11 and the scene here is at Antioch it says now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now again, that's how they were comfortable. They really didn't, you know, they didn't identify with the Gentiles. They didn't have to share the same kind of culture. Uh, and so it's just easier to talk to your buddies who who think the way you think and, and feel the way you do and like the football team that you like. We, we all just kind of birds of a feather flock together, in other words. It says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. And remember, that's where Barnabas is from. He's from, he's from Cyprus. Uh, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. So these were, these were the folks who were, who were uh, involved in Greek, in Greek culture. And they were preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Uh-oh. Right, so now you've got all kinds of Gentiles who are being saved up here 300 miles north of Jerusalem in the, uh, in the city of Antioch. And... Uh, Phenomenal things going on, and now the word gets back to Jerusalem, to what is essentially the home office. And uh, and so when they heard about that, it says they sent Barnabas to Antioch. In other words, we're going to send old Barnabas up there and let him check this thing out. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And isn't it interesting that they didn't send Peter and John? 
as they had sent Peter and John when the Samaritans had received the uh, the Spirit of God. Maybe it was that Peter and John were involved in, in other ministries. We just don't know. But I think it's fascinating that the, that the one that they send is Barnabas. And perhaps that's because Barnabas was more comfortable in, uh, in talking with these people, although the, the non-Jews, you would, although you would think that by this point that would be less of a problem with, uh, with Simon Peter after the uh, incident with, uh, with Cornelius that we talked about last time. All right, I didn't mean to, uh, to go on and on here. It says, okay, when he, Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And then it tells us something about Barnabas. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Gentiles are just flooding now into the kingdom of God. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Remember, Barnabas was the one who had introduced Saul to the apostles at, Gen, uh, at, at Jerusalem and helped them to be comfortable with uh, with this former persecutor, uh, you know, hanging out among them. And so now Barnabas says, "I know what I'll do." And remember the. Uh, uh, the province of Syria and Cilicia are right next to each other. So here's uh, Saul up there doing, making tents and doing whatever. I'm sure doing some preaching uh, in, uh, in Tarsus, in Cilicia. And so what does Barnabas do? It says, He went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they, Barnabas and Saul, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So this is why... Uh, this is where the term Christian came from, a Christ one, and so they're te- so you got this whole flood of, of pagans who have come to faith, and what do they know? I mean, at least the the Jews who had come to faith, they were familiar with the Old Testament, uh, the those priests and and some Pharisees who uh, who came to know the Lord. Uh, they were real familiar with the Scriptures. But man, you, with these Gentiles, they didn't know anything about the Old Testament. All, all they knew was that uh, that this Jesus was uh, had died for their sins and had been resurrected from the dead. The Gospel was preached to them and God was honoring that preaching of the Gospel and they came, uh, they came to know the Lord. And so since they didn't know anything... What Barnabas does is he gets Saul of Tarsus and he brings him brings him over to Antioch and together the two of them spend uh, a good bit of time. It says um, they met with the church for a whole year. And what are they doing? They're preaching and they're teaching and they're discipling because that's what these these folks need because they didn't know anything except that Jesus had died for them and had been raised from the dead. But they didn't know the implications of all of that. They didn't know the background for all of that. 
verse 27, Now in, those day, in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And then parenthetically, um, Luke tells us this took place in the days of Claudius. When that Claudius ruled from uh, A.D. 41 to 54. So that uh, see these little these little tidbits that Luke gives us helps us to uh, put it in the in the right time frame. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And notice the order: it's not Saul and Barnabas. Now, eventually, it will be but right now it's Barnabas and Saul Barnabas is the leader and Saul is the helper at this point so what you've got is is you've got uh, there's this famine that's taking place down in Judea it's adversely affecting believers down there believers obviously from a Jewish background and so now these Gentile believers up to the north who are not feeling the effects of that famine to uh, apparently to to the extent that they were to the south they decide to send some relief I'm sure in in terms of uh, in terms of money, uh, perhaps uh, other things as well, but they decide to do that, and they send it to, uh, and they they send it by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. You'll notice that uh, uh, in this shift from Jerusalem to Antioch that precedes the missionary uh, tours that we're going to be talking about. Uh, that there are three new things. You've got a new chair. You've got a new center. And that's the Antioch. You've got a new name now. Instead of just being referred to as people of the way, they are known as Christians, Christ ones. And there now is a new team. And the team right now is made up of Barnabas and Saul. Now, Saul certainly preached the gospel and i want us to look uh, for just a few minutes uh, yeah we've got plenty of time I want us to look for just a few minutes uh, and and it's in roman numeral 5 of your notes the gospel according to saul and uh, uh, primarily by looking at something that Paul wrote. It's one, it's, in fact, as far as we know, it's the first letter that he wrote, which is the book of Galatians. It was written around A.D. 49. And uh, notice what it says. Um, is, is, uh, and let, me re- no, let me read this verse first. Acts chapter 26, uh, verses 15 and following, where we see what Jesus says to uh to Saul, and this is uh, this is uh, Saul giving his testimony. He says, "And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you were persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you." to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among all those who are sanctified by faith in me. So there's Paul's 
personal testimony. I believe this was his testimony before King Agrippa. And as he gives that testimony, he's saying, here's what the Lord Jesus spoke to me. And this is... This is my purpose in life is to uh, is to communicate the gospel to the Gentiles, and uh, and we've we've already talked a little bit about his preparation for ministry. Certainly, he had uh, extensive rabbinical training, and then he had spent that uh, nine to eleven years in Arabia, a time certainly of solitude. He'd gone back to his own hometown of Tarsus, where he stayed at least another nine years, and then there's some mentoring. Uh, at least for a year uh, by Barnabas and he's where uh, Saul is also serving the church there at Antioch and during that time uh, this doctrine of justification uh, by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone is being is being developed so let's look at something that Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2 again this is uh, this is the first letter we we believe that he that he wrote, and uh, and notice what he what he says, and he he refers to this uh, this event uh, after uh, after his time in Arabia. He says, then after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Titus was a Gentile believer. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in. Now these are the Judaizers. And we're going, oh, we're going to talk a lot about the Judaizers. They were people who came out of a Jewish background. Many of whom, uh, were, some of whom were true believers, but just were so steeped in the Old Testament law that it was just hard for them to give up. And it was they, they believed that a Gentile could become a true believer in Christ, but uh, the only way he could was to... Uh, become a Jew first, which meant uh, if he's a guy, it meant circumcision. It also meant uh, keeping kosher, keeping the Sabbath, uh, all of these special days. And Paul is going to fight against all of that tooth and nail. <clears throat> but it says, uh, verse 4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, and the slavery he's talking about there is the slavery of the law. Having to do all of these things. The only way I can be acceptable to God is if I keep the Sabbath, if I keep kosher, if I'm circumcised, if I do this, if I do that. And he says, no, 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 you're not going to bring it. That, that is slavery, and you're not going to do that. Now, this will come to a head uh, later on. Well, right after Paul has written this letter to the Galatians, it will it will really come to a head uh, later that year uh, in A.D. 49 and probably early A.D. 50 when the first church council meets, the Jerusalem council, because it's all about what is it that's required of Gentiles in order that they might be saved. And uh, praise the Lord. It's the same as for anybody else. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All right, so 
let me let me try reading it again and and not talk so much about what it means. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. In other words, I, I, when I went to meet those guys, I wasn't trying to get their okay from them that what I was done. Listen, I've got my instructions from the Lord and I don't need the okay from the home office in Jerusalem. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James, James, remember, is the half-brother of Jesus, and now he's sort of the, the head of of uh, what's going on there in Jerusalem. And when James and Cephas, Cephas is, uh, is the Aramaic name for the Apostle Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, not pillows, but pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And remember, one of the things we just read about it back in Acts chapter 11 is when the word was out through this prophet Agabus that this famine, uh, very difficult times were going to take place in Judea, that it was the Gentiles there to the north at Antioch who who started uh, kicking in money to help out their brothers, their their Jewish believing brothers uh, in the south down in uh, Judea and Jerusalem and those uh, those areas. So, uh, oh, let me read one other passage and uh, it's from that same chapter, Galatians 2, but it has to do with uh, Paul's development of the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's from Galatians 2.16 and verse 21. Paul wrote this, and this is of course what he preached as well. And it's one of the things that would get him in the doghouse with uh, with these probably well-meaning but wrong Jewish believers who were going to insist that Gentiles have to uh, have to come by way of the law of Moses in order to be saved. He wrote this. Paul uh, saw. Well, he by now he's called uh, Paul the apostle. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. The word justified means to be declared righteous. It's the idea of being acquitted of our sins. There is no way that by trying to keep the law that God will declare us not guilty. And the reason is because we cannot keep the law. 
We can't do all of those things. In fact, one of the reasons that the law was given, it acts as a mirror. We look at the law and say, good grief, I can't measure up to that. And of course, Jesus even emphasized that, for example, in his uh, in some of his sermons when you when he would say, "Well, you know that it says, and you've all read where it says that you you shall not commit uh, commit murder." But I say to you, if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder. You know, you've read that you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look on a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. So the, the whole purpose of the law was to show us as guilty sinners that we could not measure up, that we cannot do enough, uh, and we can't do anything to make ourselves right before God. And so we're dependent upon God to acquit us of our sins, to declare us righteous. Well, how can a holy, righteous God do that? Because we are guilty, and God just can't, uh, because He is holy and righteous, he can't, uh, because of his nature, he cannot just say, well, I'll just let you guys off. That would be a violation of the nature of God himself. And so, what has to happen? Well, there has to be a willing uh, sacrificial substitute. And of course, that's the Lord Jesus. And Paul goes on here in verse 21 of Galatians 2 where he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And he's always pointing to the cross, that the cross is the solution. Whether you're talking about justification, whether you're talking about sanctification, always go back to the cross. One of the things that Jesus cried out from the cross was, It is finished. He did, and that is the word to telestai in the Greek. It means it's completely complete. It's absolutely done. It's a. Uh, it's in the perfect tense. That means it. Uh, it was done in the past, but it has lasting and permanent implications from now on. It is finished. All we need to do is trust in what Christ did on the cross. And that's the message of, uh, of, uh, of the Apostle Paul as he preached and as he wrote his letters. You know, you, you can... You, can <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of talk about discrimination today. Listen, you can pass all kind of laws against discrimination, but you can't pass laws against prejudice. Discrimination is an action, but prejudice is an attitude. You can't change people's attitudes by passing laws. What people need in order to change their attitude is a heart transplant. And of course, that's what God offers in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus. Remember, even back in the book of Ezekiel, it says there's coming a time that I will I will give them a new heart. I will take away their heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh, a heart that's able to respond. And, and even above and beyond all that, I will give them a new spirit. And then above and beyond all of that, I will put my spirit within them. And that's part of the, the new covenant that God, uh, of which we become a part when we uh, put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So what are we to conclude from uh, from all of this? Uh, there are several applications that we can make. I put those in your notes, and let's just look at those briefly as our as our time winds down. First of all, education is no substitute for revelation. Saul of Tarsus was a highly educated man. He sat uh, was the again was the son of a Pharisee, so he heard it all the time at the house growing up. Uh, he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel who was the, the if not the greatest teacher uh, in the rabbinical school at that uh, at the time he was going to school he was highly educated and yet in spite of all his education he was spiritually blind it was not until the Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to Paul that his life was changed. See, his primary need was this primary need that any of us who don't know Christ has, and that is we need to be regenerated. We need to be brought to life because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's where Saul of Tarsus was. And when God brought him to life and granted him uh, as gifts, faith, and repentance, and he expressed that toward the Lord Jesus, his life just changed dramatically. Our lives can change dramatically as well. We may not have a uh, uh, Damascus Road experience, but our life should change. And if you name the name of Jesus and you say, you know, well, yeah, I, 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 I'm a Christian. So, well, well, how has your life changed? How is your life changing right now? What difference does Christ make in your life? See, it's, it's possible to know a lot about the Bible and yet not know the God of the Bible. That was true of Saul of Tarsus. It was true of Nicodemus. Nicodemus didn't understand there in John chapter 3 when Jesus talked with him. But by the end of John's Gospel, we see that Nicodemus was one of the guys along with Joseph of Arimathea who who came to claim the dead body of the Lord Jesus to prepare it for, uh, for burial. Secondly, open identification with Christ will bring opposition from some people. Now, obviously, we're not suffering in this country the way the people in China are suffering or the way that uh, believers in Iraq are suffering. But suffering does come. But Paul regarded his suffering for Christ as a source of joy. Now, some suffering we just bring on ourselves because we're stubborn or bullheaded or whatever. But do we consider suffering for Christ? When we, when we take a stand and we are ostracized because of our biblical stand, this, listen, I can't do this. I, you know, boss, I, I'm willing to do practically anything, but I cannot falsify this because that's just not the honest thing to do. And then, you know, that can lead to being fired. It, if, if nothing else, it can be, well, you're, you're Mr. or Ms. Goody Two-Shoes. You just, you know, you got to learn to play the game. And so uh, opposition can take uh, many forms. It may be ostracism, rejection. It can be, it can take many forms. Thirdly, preparation for ministry often requires times of solitude and anonymity. We certainly see that in the life of Saul of Tarsus. Isn't it interesting that he was content to minister in virtual anonymity? 
in obedience to Christ? Uh, are we willing? I guess this is a question for us. Are, are we content in God's will? Willing to wait upon God and to learn from Him? Are we willing to play second fiddle? You know, here's, here's Barnabas who comes along. He, he's going to be the leader. In fact, when the first missionary journey starts, it's Barnabas who is the leader. Listen, the hardest instrument in the, in the orchestra of life to play is second fiddle. But we need to learn to teach our ego to hold its breath because there are things that God wants to teach us. Nothing that comes into our lives is wasted by God. He uses all of it. He certainly used uh, Saul's background. And I love that passage from Psalm 139, verse 16 and following, where it says, All the days ordained for me, were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When he says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, he's not saying the, the thoughts that are precious are the things that I think about you. The context, if you read it carefully, is that how precious to me are the fact that you have so many thoughts about me. That God, you love me that much. You know me intimately. You've ordained all the days before me. You, you, know, you knew me from the womb, my unformed substance. And he says, how vast is the sum of them. How vast is, are all of these thoughts. And were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And then in Psalm 56, just to, just to show you, along the same line, it says, You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. Now, obviously, that's symbolic, figurative language. But it's the idea that God really cares and He watches over us. You keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. I'm reminded of that old song, and we'll just close with it. We'll use this for our benediction. It's uh, it's an old song. We used to sing it many years ago. I haven't, I haven't heard it in a long time, but it's uh, called Through It All by Andre Crouch. I've had many tears and sorrows. I've had questions for tomorrow. There have been times I didn't know right from wrong. But in every situation, God gave me blessed consolation that my trials come to only make me strong. Through it all. Through it all. I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all. Through it all. I've learned to depend upon His Word. I thank God for the mountains and I thank Him for the valleys. I thank Him for the storms He brought me through. For if I'd never had a problem, I wouldn't know God could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God could do. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. 
For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.